Welcome to Episode 8 of Omega Male, a podcast that explores and supports emergent notions of maleness, manhood, being a dude, masculinity, and femininity. What do those terms even mean? What issues are men dealing with? How are we men meeting present-day cultural challenges? It's a broad study, to say the least. I'm your host, Dan McKenzie, and while the focus is on man stuff, my guests have been both men and women, and I'm interested in and open to all who have something compelling to contribute, regardless of age, race, religion, sexuality, or indeed gender identity. And in that regard, particularly, my guest today is truly unique. Now, in the interest of generating interest, I have billed Coda Pipitone as the man who became a woman who became a man. But Coda is so much more, as this interview will reveal. His gender journey aside, Coda has one of the most fascinating minds I've ever encountered, and his interests and knowledge base, particularly in the realm of new tech as it relates to human evolution and achievement, is astonishing. Before we begin, I would like to very clearly warn that in the telling of his story, Coda will share some insights, viewpoints, anecdotes, and reflections that may be triggering to some, and also may be construed as challenging to some aspects of transgender culture and community. Hopefully it will become clear that Coda himself is not anti-trans per se, nor do his personal expressions reflect any general attitude or opinions of the Omega Male podcast, which seeks to promote loving inclusion and peaceful diversity all around. In fact, I personally celebrate that every single human being has a unique path with regard to their entire identity in every realm. And so every trans person or a person who's thought about transitioning uh, their gender has a unique story. Coda's story is unique. It doesn't reflect that of any other nor uh, of all trans people, of course. That said, Coda's journey is very compelling. His experience is real. His insight is valid. And I invited him to be my guest, knowing very little about his story, but thinking who could be more interesting to talk about uh, the male condition than a man who chose to become a woman and then chose to return to maleness. And I was not disappointed. All right. And, and how do you say your last name? Pipitone? Yeah, if we were in Italy, they'd be like, Pipitone. Pipitone. But, but, but here, oh, is it an Italian name? Yes, yeah, Sicilian, Italian. Yeah, so here, Pipitone, no problem. Pipitone. Pipitone. I kind of like the Italian version. I know. You say potato. Well, I'm <laughs> I'm sitting here with Coda Pipitone, uh, known in Italy as Coda Pipitone. So let's just sort of dive right into your origin story as it relates particularly to gender, but we'll branch off from that as we go. Sure. All right, Dan. Well, thank you so much for having me here uh, and, and providing a platform to go deeper on some of these topics. Uh, for useful context, I uh, you know, grew up on a farm in Maryland. Uh, and, you know, I had one brother and two sisters, and you'd find me mowing 27 acres of grass and shoveling horse manure, really in the, the, the wow. gender divide. And, At 4 a.m. Yeah, exactly. So while well, my sisters played piano and did gymnastics. Um, so I uh, had that in the foundation and then went through pretty seriously as a sacristan, did a year at the seminary before going to actual uh, university and studied at Fordham University. Um, world religions, ethics, with a minor in economics. Was your family uh, strongly religious? Is that partly? Yeah. What that so my, my father was for a period there. He went to church every day, and we pray, we 
prayed the rosary on Fridays and we would do rosary football. So that was the incentive that he designed. <laughs> we get to play football as long as you come to the rosary. So yeah, that was definitely there. Uh, and I think that the the values and the actual theology, you know, practicing theological discernment was a big part of my childhood that then grew into Jesuit values. So Loyola Blakefield High School, learning about retreats and um, men in community together, learning about hard work and discipline, and then Fordham University Jesuit tradition, getting into St. Ignatius de Loyola and how he valued education as really the, the, the incentive for spiritual and religious development. I was, and still am, deeply in that path. I now frame religion as a path that you go through to get to equanimity, which is, can be a little more secular, and we can go deeper into that later. But back to who I am. So, so after that, I travel the world. What age are we talking about uh, so, now? I, I, so I started traveling. I, you know, I graduated about a year early from college. So I, it, I was 21, and I just did one-way tickets with my girlfriend at the time. Um, you know, Hawaii, across the country on a train, then Hawaii, then Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, ended up living in Japan for a year and a half. Now, I, experiencing these cultures, I continually had external reminders of different relationships to masculinity and femininity in the cultures I was moving through mm -hmm. that really problematized what I saw on Jerry Springer with this whole, like you'd see trans in American culture as really a negative light. But then I saw Hijra and looked at what Hijra were in India as these doulas and uh, of, of birth and, and, and the officiants at weddings. And I got really into the anthropology and I said, wait, there's so much deeper expression here. Wait, what? I'm just going to interject. Uh, could you, um, for anyone who's never heard that term, including me, just yeah. describe what hedra are. Is yeah, that so let's 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 go in. So, um, and and what I am setting up for those who aren't uh, forecasting well is I did move into a very intentional expansion of my gender with medical technology, and then a reintegration, and now I'm very consciously embodying the masculine position in relationship and in polarity, and I and I, that's really the thrust of our conversation. So right. when I looked around the world and saw all of these gender diverse cultures that were based in place, they all had outside of the social contract around family structures and and, and heterosexuality or reproductive parents, there was always some intentional respected outliers so a hijra was someone who uh they were they're from the type of of buddhism in the in the region and they and 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 hinduism and they they oversee transitional periods in life so if that's birth death or marriage and they would historically give blessings but after british cultural interruption of the indian indigenous putting it mildly Cultural, that's a very, yeah. very polite way to say it. They, British cultural interruptions. Yeah. Yes, go ahead. They, um, yeah, East India Trading Company. Yeah. They, uh, they became like the witches who were cursing you. Oh. Um, and that was the narrative uh, attack that is still deeply entrenched in, in the Indian consciousness. And that's just one. PBS.org has a map of gender diverse cultures. We can maybe put a link to it. And you'll see hundreds of these. But just to be yeah. super literal for people, are yeah. these... People that were born a particular uh, yeah. gender, but were you exactly. know living or manifesting a certain way, or exactly. these people that had had yeah yeah yeah. So, and we can talk about Mahu in Hawaii, uh, Bisu in Indonesia. We can talk about the different shamans in Ethiopia. 
Um, but the hijra specifically, they do a type of hair plucking. They're assigned male at birth. They have penises. They have androgen systems. They're 100% a male being. And they uh, augment their expression to have to look socially more feminine and live as this woman who's like almost a second woman. Right? They've so it's almost like a, a, a trans tribal woman. version of a transgender yeah, person. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And it's and it was is it usually assigned male? Yeah, in the hijra female? specifically, okay. yes. All right. Um, at, because they're essentially neutralizing their their uh, their sexuality and they're, they're, they're like a non-sexual role in society and therefore they're putting all that energy into their their medicine work and their healing and their their cultural advice so are they are they celibate the hedra they you, 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 it depends on the the only because <laughs> you said they're sort yeah, of you know yeah, subjugating so it, yeah, their sexuality sure. it, it, i'm not an expert i'm not going to claim to be okay. a white person talking right but right but it, it, if each of the they have these families they live together similar to how um the trans community in the united states has these houses that then they compete in vogue and dance they have these houses of uh essentially young hijra that are that are it's both an honor and slightly a shame when you have a hijra in your family it's an honor because you're you know in the spiritual sense but it's a shame in this modern cultural sense and that the child is sent to live with the other hijra and cultivate this and inside of that maybe there's some homosexuality or some kind of other expressions but it's not from what i've read and conversations i've had with hijra it's not really the focus of the identity like they're not they're not doing prostitution for example um whereas some other ones are right so if we go to thailand right and look at the oldest monarchy on earth that has not been colonized there is a conversation around cultural maturity where you're no longer uh, building the entire social contract around units of labor, uh, the most efficient family unit to raise another worker, um, and you're no longer doing that. Then you have these other social roles that emerge that are um, expansive in gender, and you have the katoe, you have these, you have toms and d's, you have all of these new words to describe what is really happening in the language and the culture escape the United States right now with LGBTQIA a million different things incredibly un endlessly complex and hyper liquid as far as structure and stability um, you had that emerging in Thailand and having no shame or taboo around it so much so that when language scaled across the monarchy they didn't care about biological sex in the language they're objective about it in the science but in the language if you're given masculine and you're connecting with someone else, given off feminine expression, that's called match, which translates to heterosexual, despite if it's two vaginas or two penises. And if you take that further and you look at, uh, say, like a masculine female and a masculine male, say they go to CrossFit together and they maybe compete in Ironman competitions mm -hmm. together and maybe live in Miami or something, that, that, that's actually homosexual or no match in Thailand the language they would use. In Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So I, I got super nerdy about this and it was resonating with me, um, just to bring it back to self, it was resonating with me specifically because um, growing up, I, I had a hard time squeezing my Italian roots into this conservative Catholic uh, gender map that existed in, in Maryland at the time, right? I, I like, I want to dance. I love textiles and like, you know, the fabrics that people wear. And that's super common of men in Italy. But not at all right, a thing right. on a farm right. in Maryland. There's nothing particularly male or female about no, those things, no. right? Dancing. If you think about, you know, the Latin culture, you know, Latin American and the dance traditions there, this is like in some ways objectively 
some of the most macho culture in the world. And yet the dancing, even for the men, that is some sensuous stuff that, you know, judged from some uptight Nordic European culture might seem feminine in some way, right? So these cultural mores are so diverse. It's interesting. So you went traveling, you were observing all these different cultural definitions and understandings and manifestations of gender and uh, sexuality. And in some ways, it seemed like you had some light bulbs going off about like, wow, the world is very much different from this Christian farming community that I grew yeah. up in. <laughs> All boys. And, uh, uh, and you were schools. just, yeah, you were just <laughs> yeah. getting into your own identity, right? And it has it, and the way it felt constrained by your upbringing. And you already were sort of saying there might even have been something in your DNA history, right? You said your, your Italian roots, yeah. right? There was something about that culture that was even suppressed. So here you are, you're, you're seeing all these different manifestations in the world. You're traveling. What's next? Yeah. So I, there was a period where I was in a long-term relationship for most of that traveling. Um, uh, amazing, intelligent, beautiful woman, Akane. And, and you know, we we had a, a really stable structure talking about having kids, talking about moving to, to, to Paris next and, and you know, doing this, uh, the next stage, get, get a master's degree and, and whatnot. And then she went away for a week, uh, no, sorry, a month uh, to produce a conference in Thailand, actually. Uh, we were living in Japan. And in that month of me living by myself, I was just finally in this isolated space to reflect on the whirlwind of the, the, you know, the two years prior and all of the exposure that I'd had. And it was, and I was, I guess, 22 at the time, 23, maybe I guess. Yeah. 20, about 23. And How I was- How old are you now, by the way? 33. 33. Yeah. Okay. So 11 yeah. years ago. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and, and I was- integrating and thinking about my childhood and in my childhood I was interested in literature bef- uh, as my uh, I think there's a conversation around pornography right so I, I didn't have my first you know experience I had it with erotic literature that I stumbled upon <laughs> in, in middle school and I was like reading and I and I was like what's this and I had no low sexual education because Catholic right. upbringing um, we can touch on 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 you know that as that whole thread of the roots of uh, maybe tr- transgender psychology and some of the theories like autogynephilia, where you have an internal map instead of an external partner seeking uh, to satisfy your evolutionary payoff function. So you have this instead of seeking a romantic partner, you kind of imagine becoming and then creating yourself as your romantic partner to satisfy your needs. Because I didn't have sexual education. Wait, slow down a bit because yeah. you're 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 downloading a lot of really interesting information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's a lot of terminology that might be yes, hard to yes, follow. Yes, yes. So, what was that word? Autogynephilia. Yeah. So, yeah. So, autogynephilia and autophaliophilia are are two um, theories that I think very do a really good job of explaining how uh, in psychological development we have what is expressing as transgender identity now. And I am speaking in terms that intentionally do not engage gender theory because I I you know I've I've been in that right I've been in that world and I've experienced the shortcomings and the tribalism and the momentum of that of that uh that ideology is is a zeitgeist and I can see a trajectory that I don't want to be a part of okay while there are good threads and values around celebration and expression there are also um, concerns around groupthink and uh uh constriction of thought that I think are a little dangerous. Let's drop a pin yeah. in that because that yeah. sounds like really interesting stuff. 
Yeah. Um, so I want to I want to move through your journey yeah. a little bit, awesome, but, but awesome. we'll I'll remember that. Yeah. Um, and so you're saying just let's so let's let's define that term that you were talking about mm -hmm. autogynephilia, mm -hmm. and then move back into you where yeah. you were at in yeah. these two months. Sure, sure. So that term autogynephilia is essentially uh, an erotic association with self as female, as opposed to having female partner. Right. And autophiliophilia is the inverse. So, uh, so a female uh, person to then have an erotic association with the possibility of themselves having a being male. Interesting. Right. And this is an erotic target fixation error that develops through lack of sexual education informally. And then uh, when your parents, your imago, right, there's not a lot of touch and loving relationship, you don't pattern map your blueprint for relationship from your parents. You just pattern map that in your imagination. Mm. <laughs> and and it's, it becomes this internal process. So then you're not mate-seeking. And then when puberty hits in, all of these um, character traits and values which would be developed and discerned through mapping onto the social dynamics that you're experiencing and living in are instead mapped deeper into your imagination and then your self-expression. Okay, so in simple terms, what, what might have been directed towards another person that you would desire to be in relation with somehow gets mapped into yourself. Bingo. What's interesting about that is, I don't wanna get even more philosophical, <laughs> but I can't resist saying, yeah. I think there's something in Jungian psychology, I'm not an expert, but uh, I read a, a book or two uh, about how in a reverse sort of way, Jung identified how men, if they are not attuned to the divine feminine within themselves, culturally, especially in Western culture, have not been educated to find the inner balance of their masculine and divine feminine. And so they will project it out. And that's kind of what romantic or this overly romantic Western love is that you're looking for this goddess woman and end up not, this is of course about heterosexuality, but um, in, the, in this Jungian, but it's sort of interesting that this idea of not being in touch with something within that's feminine that would lead men to sort of project unrealistic expectations romantically on a female partner and thereby look for something rather than a real human being, you're talking about um, being raised in a particular way with certain guidances, not in boxes not being checked in sort of your healthy development and thereby a condition, would you call it a, a, a syndrome? What is it? What yeah, I mean, you, is? Yeah, is it, just a, it would be a pathology, a pathology if, you're, if you're using Western analysis. So that's that's sort of like the reverse of that, like something that would be sought in the outside is is then. Exactly. Right. So do you feel like that was happening to you? Yeah. Clearly it, you brought it up for a reason. Yeah, for sure. So, so I think that that's definitely an accurate way to describe why I found uh, resonance with these gender expansive cultures, because I had had some kind of correlated experience but they were but i didn't feel like anything was wrong i felt great I, I actually was i was having romantic relationships with women and i was finding monogamous partners and i was really confident as a male but i every once in a while about every four years which is a hormonal development cycle i would have this curiosity about what it would be like to be a woman so it was like a piece of my development was autogynephilic mm -hmm. and I didn't have the language for that until I encountered trans ideology, which then was like the gas pedal and it just pushed me in a direction very fast. 
that I navigated well, but we'll, we'll go into later. Um, so c- coming back when I when I encountered the the space living in Japan that month by myself and started processing, oh wow, like could I live in a more gender expansive way? My repressed creative and expressive aspects, like, and and I even went. I was like, well, like, am I gay? Let me try that. And like, no, I don't like the smell. Like, I'm not. I don't <laughs> right. respond well to anything right. coming from a male. I don't like male attention. But I I I can say that from having attempted, right? So I know that objectively. Yeah. And and like, understand. you don't know what your preference is until you, you try, try some it. of the flavors, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I've tried all the flavors of ice cream, so it wasn't that. So then I was like, okay, am I? Like what? What is not? What is wanting to be expressed? So I tried. Like Japanese fashion was a lot more expressive. So I started exploring, and then I started researching, and they, I found that there was this whole thing happening in the United States around gender, and I didn't realize that. So we're talking about a decade ago, right? Yeah, this is two thousand thirteen. Like, yeah, yeah, thirteen yeah. and fourteen. It was the trans sure. tipping point. Yeah, and I was sitting over here in Japan, completely divorced from it all, and then having it emerge in me. So I started reflecting on the childhood experiences. Okay, my brother, you know, I was, he's an older brother. I shared a room with him. He, my mom's attention. He probably want, didn't want me to be in the room. He probably wanted more of mom's attention. So like he was always kind of interrupting my flow to my mother in those ways. And like I'm grateful for the experience. I learned a lot about you know abundance and and and, and you know unconditional love for my mother. But also, um, I, I didn't like the interruptions. Like he he was and 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 he communicated. They didn't want me in the room, so I would always be hanging out with my sisters, and they were also like I was an artist and I could paint and and they would they would be doing those things, whereas my brother wasn't interested in those things. So I had this deep connection with my younger sister and my older sister that was different. Um, I never thought like oh I'm I'm a girl, but we did play games where I'd pretend to be a girl when I was little. And I think that's decently normal. Like totally, I, yeah. I, you know, I, but you're I, living I was, in a you're living in a very um, conservative yeah. Christian gender restrictive thing, and there's parts of you that want to find expression that are totally condoned for the sisters, yeah. and supported, but not for the boys who are supposed to be out there yeah. Yeah. playing football and you know exactly. mowing the lawn or whatever. And I would have a tea party with my sisters or something with and your dogs. brothers kind of pushing, and my you brother aside. would make fun of me for it, and he was like, and get alienating out. you, yeah, yeah, and judging you, and you're yeah. and you're totally warmly. Re- it's like the party over here sure. is happening. So okay, so that's gonna affect me, and I knew that was kind of unresolved, and I was like, you know, being in New York, I ex- encountered so much, before traveling, I encountered so much uh, like expression. I encountered a lot of like fully expressed queer people and things. And I was like, wow, I I feel so comfortable in that space. And I and it was never like I have to be queer to be in that space, but it was I could be around people who were artists, and that I was wanting to have a more healthy expression of my feminine traits. And I was in Japan, so I started exploring that. And then I decided to come back. And when I came back to the states, and I started talking about that to, in a support group, because um, I actually the conversation about expressing more of my feminine, and then the research said that I may have transgenderism i may have a gender identity or gender dysphoria so i communicated that to my girlfriend and she was not excited by that yeah um and most women yeah i would imagine like would have a hard time right and what i determined was i i I didn't mean to laugh by the way just like there was sort of a bit of a humor like she the way you said it it's It's like she wasn't excited about that no she was like Um, wait what are you she i think rightfully understood that ideology to be dangerous and she was a decolonial theorist a cultural anthropologist she was very intellectual and and she could 
detect the danger in the gender ideology that was coming up in the culture at that time. And I couldn't because I was going to be sourcing belonging. I don't, let me just interrupt to say, you kids, you know, I'm a lot older than you, so I can say you kids. Yeah. I mean, you're way more sophisticated at age 20, whatever, than (laughs) I I remember being 23 and I thought we were pretty uh, evolved and, you know, uh, intellectual and philosophical, but I don't know what's happening in the world or you guys were just uh, outliers, but you sound like very deeply self-reflective young people to be dealing with all these incredible, you know, you're dealing with your own personal life cycle developments and in the context of this cultural happenings and deep, like educated philosophy. I don't know where all this came from, but I'm I'm very intrigued by it. So go on. So now you're talking to your girlfriend. You've had this moment in Japan, presumably some of your exploration. You said there was some sexual exploration, but I'm, I'm assuming by the way you're talking that there was the, your form of dress, right? Yeah, uh, was exactly. you growing your hair? Like there was, you were doing things to explore what you were calling like your more feminine traits. And you're, and now you're telling her about this. Yeah. You're in a support group exploring yeah. it. Yeah. And she's not excited because not, it's interesting that you said she's not just not excited because, oh, what's going to happen to our relationship or are you going to leave me or what's your sexuality? She's looking at this going, there's a cultural conversation happening. Yeah that you, she felt like you might be getting swept into or something that was going to be dangerous. So go, go and, on. And she, I would say now pretty confidently, she was right. And I was a little bit naive to the power of a, a person in the face of a movement when belonging is conditional to aligning with the ideology of a movement. So I was excited to find a whole new community of expressed people. And I wasn't like, I'm going to be a woman. I was like, I'm going to express and I'm going to, all my superpowers are going to come online and I'm going to be able to contribute at my fullest. Um, And that became true. I joined a co-op. I I started leading events. We had a free school. I would lecture on different topics and host panels. Uh, Baltimore had their, um, there was a, a murder at the hands of police officers in 2015. And I was there organizing these mediations between the mayor's office and the police department. Department of Justice came in and I'm, I got to be really amplified because I was taking slow steps into uh, a, a, an expansive gender expression. Uh, and then, and I was a, a, a speaker. I was a public facing intellectual. So I was able to get a lot of clout because of how I articulated what in the world this thing was. Right. And I was riding it very well. It was right. on the surfboard. You're in the middle of it, but yeah. you're also super smart and you're able to articulate it. Were you now, just to paint the picture here, are you living basically in what someone would call a trans identity at this point? You're like in your style yeah. of presentation? Are you kind of yeah. sort of going flowy and one day you're in jeans and boots and the next day you're, you know... Yeah, I think it's More, just androgyny. Like, androgyny. I, okay. I think the first step I did when I got back to the United States, I found a therapist who was a specialist in this, and they said, just try wearing tighter pants. Hmm. And I was like, okay. Interesting. Done. And I was like, all right, am I done? <laughs> okay, tighter pants. And like three three months of that, and like, am I done? Hey, Mac, then everyone was wearing skinny jeans. Yeah. I don't know what kind of advice that yeah, is. I, I just know. Wear, yeah. and, it was, and then like I did that for three months, and I was like, oh, maybe I'll try like shaving my beard every day. And my hair was getting longer. And I was like, okay, this is kind of cool. I'm kind of androgynous. Um, but uh, you let that snowball grow and momentum grow. And I'm the kind of person that's like, I want to push and find the resistance. I want to find the no so they can be like, okay, I'm, I'm, I know where the center is. You're the, all in. Right? Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm like, all right, what next? And and then I was, was like, what if I like had a wig and went out on the weekends and it felt so wild to to present as someone entirely different? I got addicted to it. So 
there's something around escapism and performance that allowed me to avoid accountability for distancing from being who I actually am. And this is, we can get into masculinity at some point. Yeah, yeah. I but but I, so I basically dove all the way into the, the, the creation of this feminine avatar. And then I like I learned about hormones and they said, you should definitely take hormones. And I was like, okay. And then I was like, I got really scared by that. But I did it and I froze my sperm because like, oh, this is terrible. Like what happens if I... And then once you're on hormones, your neurology starts changing, your subcutaneous fat starts changing, the ways in which you relate to other people starts changing. And these have very, very immediate effects on how you process information and how you sense uh, a present moment. So you're essentially in the, the, the data archive of memories that is my past. There's a period where I changed operating systems on the computer and started doing everything in Apple from, from being in Microsoft. And then you're speaking metaphorically, yes. now, right? So this yes. is, and it had to do with a few elements, right? You're in a new cultural group. Yes. You're feeling a, a lot of support that you didn't get historically. Yeah. You are in an expansive mode where a lot of the things you're trying are very exciting. Mm. And you're now taking hormones, and those are also informing internally. And reflecting all the changes that are sort of happening externally. Yeah. Is that, fair? Yeah. Is that a good reflection? And, and I began resonating with people that are more feminine spectrum. So a lot of women and a lot of uh, more, more effeminate men. And then I started just like communicating in those paradigms, pattern matching across their their communication tactics. And then uh, it was I was observing and no, journaling about these shifts and understanding how I structured communication around like, sens sensory information of an experience and communicating kind of circularly versus I had historically been studying philosophy and building logical architecture and communicating the merit of that structure to scale further and then critiquing logical structures of others, right? So I was an on, studying ontology, metaphysics, ethics, world religions. So I was in that. And then suddenly now here I am like communicating emotionally in a very new lexicon. And I was able to, to do it really well. And I got in, I became, I was appointed the executive director of the Baltimore Trans Alliance. We lobbied in, in several states around, um, it's called self-attestation for gender documents. So basically declaring your gender and having the, the, the public accommodations align with that. Um, I don't know if that's a good thing. I think it opens the floodgates to a lot of confusion in society, to be honest. Um, but at the time, I thought it was the best thing. And I was not in the trans people are victims. I wasn't in that at all. I was in the transness is the next step this is transhumanism. We're going to have self-directed biology. We're going to, like, mimetic evolution. The evolution of ideas is going to uh, build new tools that then affects the evolution of biology. And where this is it. We're about to have an apex in, in, in evolution through this, this thing. And I'm a part of it. And I want to contribute to it. And I'm going to cultivate new leaders in this movement. And I was really a full-on transhumanist. And I can see why that would be a really attractive idea. In a way, I think that's very much in line with a lot of the ideas that I'm playing with and exploring conceptually here in the sense that I do believe in the evolution of humanity, not just like as biological animals, but in fact, spiritually, culturally. And I do think that we're at a moment where 
um, because we're less and less attached to those ancient roles of like the men plow the field and the women, you know, raise the children, we do have more freedom to explore and to support in each other much more um, broad spectrum self-expressions in terms of what used to be called masculinity and femininity. But the difference being, I'm I'm speaking mostly sociologically, culturally, um, divorcing the idea of male from masculine and female from feminine Mm -hmm. and becoming more accepting of a broad range of types for what a man is or a woman is. And you, on the other hand, are living this experiment, but it's also going into, in your mind, into like biotech and like exactly. all of that other stuff. All right, so- Exactly. So, well, so, but that's, I think that that, wherever that took you, I think that that's a really a vital idea, right? The This idea of expanding the spectrum, but I'm gathering that then you went down a particular pathway. Yeah. That, okay. So yeah, let's go. So 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 there was a period at which I was executive director executive director of a, of, a, of an advocacy organization, and I was being mentored for politics around the same cohort where like Alexandria Alexandria Ocasio Cortez and Chelsea Manning were being mentored by the same funders who were approaching me to be cultivated as the next political candidate. There, I was going to the Democratic National Convention, um, and I was going to be like in that pipeline of talent development. Uh, the, the World Economic Forum identified me as a global shaper, so I was already in that pipeline. And I had I had done a couple things. I was getting disenfranchised with Baltimore City politics, specifically their funding streams and the, the collusion that is- Disenfranchised? Yeah. The, 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 uh, no, why is that? On the one hand, you're being supported. Presumably, uh, look, there's, you're attractive. There's like four families in Baltimore that run the whole thing. Oh, okay. I'm just assuming, <laughs> are they, and they're conservative? Is that um, what it is? Well, they're just, they have their own incentives. And I think it's just, it, it just became really like a dynasty. And you would agree with the dynasty or you didn't. And then that dynasty had relationships with other, other uh, funders for the national campaigns. And you essentially had a right and a wrong answer to what you could or couldn't say if you accepted the money. Okay, so just to be clear, I'm I'm assuming you were identified as a leader, A, because you're attractive, young, intelligent, and eloquent, and you're uh, and now embodying a trans movement. So it's like, I'm okay, trending on all metrics. here's our person, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. But the thing about the Baltimore thing, so are, is it that they were conservative and anti-trans or that they had a particular, they were um, in sort of cahoots with a particular agenda within the trans movement. What's what was the it's, resistance to you? It's more that my towing the line of trans politics and trans inclusion as my platform, and not being who I was. All you know, I was a technologist, and I was building companies, and I was building a software company to improve uh, homeless services and and, and HUD spending on, on, on client acquisition and retention and service in homeless services, and and that was really valuable contribution. And I was talking about, um, you know, wearable devices and, and, and the biometrics of well-being. And I was, I was not just a trans person, right? Clearly not. And How did you have time for all this stuff? I didn't sleep much. No, no, no. I, was, I was into flow, flow stuff at that time. So like that was before, you know, you know, I can't pronounce the guy's name, Chesniak, but essentially all the stuff, like now I work with, with Jamie Wheel at Flow Genome Project. So I'm in that world still, but it, I was using all of these kind of biohacking modalities, focus, flow, to do a lot in a short amount of time and manage teams effectively. And my mentor was, a uh, role model would be Martine Rothblatt, who was a, the highest paid female CEO in the world, transgender woman, built built the legal frameworks for satellite, the satellite industry and built Sirius Satellite Radio, and then went into all kinds of cool pharmaceutical 
development for rare diseases and then now builds regenerates organs and does these organ transplants from like um yeah xenotransplantation really fascinating stuff and and electric vertical trans- transit like flying electric helicopters all this cool stuff so i'm so you have I'm this a, almost I'm, almost like a, a I'm like, an idea like an idol or a, a mentor yeah. figure you're like, oh, that's that could be me. That and kind they of were person. investing right. time in me. Super highly effective transhuman. Yeah. Okay. So here you are yeah. in this position. What happens next? They basically said that um, you know you can you can stay on the political path and uh, speak identity politics and, and 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 structures of oppression, or you you know or or not and and and, I, and I, that became clear in some some board meetings where I was the token I was a token trans person I wasn't the strategic consultant I wasn't the business consultant I wasn't in making investment recommendations I was just the trans person and that's all I could talk on so despite your incredible qualifications educationally intellectually philosophically you were the person who fit the the jacket or yeah. the dress in this yeah. case yeah. and they were like this is you know and they wanted you to speak a certain dogma and a certain agenda and you felt limited by that and maybe wary of it. Does that sound like Yeah, so I left so through did. that door and came in through another door. Okay, and what's right? that door? That's that's more where I am now. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is, we had a contract with the state of Maryland to build software for, uh, for client acquisition. So essentially for young people to access social workers through a type of encrypted app on a phone that then could get them into the the social services client management systems and they could get healthcare and housing vouchers and things as opposed to becoming homeless. And we had this you know decent grant from the from a HUD and then the pandemic started. So I had teams running in Bangladesh and team in Greece doing software development and then suddenly I couldn't pay them. All special projects budgets disappeared. And I caught a lot of flack from the the kind of activist and entrepreneur community for host home never got built what happened with all the money and like they looked at me and i can't really tell a story um so that that was a bit of a blow and the pandemic was wait is the world ending um but what's (laughs) happening now just that's all this interesting stuff in your career but what's happening now with the girlfriend with your relationship to your gender are you wanting to transition further you know in a in there was a part of this uh very compelling story where you were like really in this trajectory of wanting to go further and and push yeah. the limits. And where in the where in that trajectory are you now at this yeah, point? Yeah, the, yeah. The I gotta fill and, in a lot of gaps to yeah. be able to answer the question around now because now I'm deep in men's work and with a very conscious choice and commitment. And to get from here, to get from where I was in the story. So I came back, I joined the trans movement, I became an activist, became an entrepreneur, became a public figure in that space, did a TED talk, like did all that. Um, and then I was, I had been meditating since college and I had been doing yoga, I've been studying Kundalini yoga um, and doing some uh, indigenous ceremonial technologies. So working with ethnobotanical plants, working with the peyote community, um, uh, about quarterly. So four times a year, I would sit uh, in the Wiharika ceremonies and learn their Icaros and, and understand how to work a fire. I mean, still living as this transhumanist person um, and and studying entrepreneurial mindset. So I had a spiritual past that was an undercurrent. When the pandemic hit and all the career structures fell away and you know I just renovated a house in Baltimore, was living in it, 
and suddenly like had nothing. And I was actually, there were renovations happening in the house and I was staying with my parents at the farm for a little while. And then, you know, it was like, wait a minute, the world just ended. Here I am eating dinner at my parents, my childhood table. And I'm 30 and my company is now dissolved. Like I'm, I'm literally right back where I was when I was in high school. How did this happen? Um, and at the same time, my sister who was getting married at the time, um, was also visiting from London and got stuck. And my brother who had two kids and was in the military was visiting and got stuck because of the pandemic. So it was this big moment of, wait a minute. Well, we, we transformed it into a gift of let's, let's, you know, readdress some unaddressed things from childhood. Let's come together as a family. Um, and that was beautiful, but I, uh, started working more seriously with plant medicines at the time, the Santo Daime community and with ayahuasca. And then I decided to sell my house um, and I dissolved my both Soyana and host home. And then I moved to Bali, Indonesia to um, under, uh, there was a friend over there who had an interesting project, but also I had dinner with Marianne Williamson and she recommended, she said, I'm going to meet someone um, in the mountains, like an old man with a beard, and he's going to have something for me. And when I got to Bali within a few months, I was, you know, dated a Tantra healer woman and traveling around. I was kind of, I had stopped taking hormones at the beginning of the pandemic as well. And I was just like, all this is too much. Like, And in the stopping taking hormones, I would meditate an hour every day. And then I'd be like, I could meditate another hour. Um, there's no sexual drive. Your bones begin to deteriorate. You know, I, I'm, I'm basically castrated, so I don't produce any testosterone. So I'm sitting there and I am uh, like just getting into these deep spiritual truths. Clubhouse is out and I'm in these some spiritual conversations there. And then I'm living in Bali and I'm meeting this tantric woman and I'm doing some deep work. And then I meet Hiro Manku, who's a Balinese high priest. And we go into his, his temple and he does this deep process asking me all these questions. And I have this like experience where I break open and I realize I don't know, like I am not the name I'm using. And when did I start hiding behind this mask? And like, I am not, um, I'm not any of these accomplishments in this professional resume. Like, I don't really know what my favorite color is. I don't really know what my name is. I don't know what I'm doing and how did I get here? And it was a, a bit of a, like a, like a, 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 a reboot of my system. And he's just like, what do you want to do? I was like, I, I want to ride a motorcycle around the island. And he's like, go do that. <laughs> so, so I just, you know, got a, a motorcycle and rode around Bali. Um, and, you know, started going deeper into gene keys and parts work, internal family systems, had some really interesting integrations of um, John, my birth name. Like I had the, like kind of a hallucination of John being there. Ava was the name I used in the trans community just because it's a palindrome. Um, you can go in both directions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, and and like they were, I, I had kind of a waking hallucination of both of them coming together and reconciling. And the name Coda came from this experience because in music, when the song begins to repeat, we have a coda. It's when the measures repeat. And then structurally, my name was J-O-H-N. So that H and the J provided the structure. So I put K-O-D-A-H as my expression of coda. So it's more structure to it. And uh, I realized that a lot of the exploration and study of the feminine uh, that I went through was one, a transhumanist exploration, which is, has merit and 
I have a different approach to solving the same expression of values. But there's two, a reintegration of the feminine so that I can more fully own the responsibility of being a man in this world. And this is where I really took a second look at the patriarchy is the root of all evil, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. and started remembering that 99.9% of all military casualties are men. Roads, dams, bridges are built by men. Yes, maybe the top five or three percent of men control most of the wealth on the earth. But the other 95 or 98 percent of men have a really rough hand. Right. <clears throat> and this this gendered ideology, this second wave and some of third wave feminism critique of men is an expression of a wounded feminine and just scaled up with intellectual architecture. So the, the, the wounded feminine is the result of men not having our sexual energy right. Because when men have our sexual energy right and are embodied and are able to be in right relationship with with discipline and principles, then women are safe and children are safe. And then we don't have a bunch of very educated females uh, cultivating a masculinity that is uh, like really like when I cultivated femininity, it was like weak, fragile and performative. And it, it looked cool and it was punk fun, but it wasn't like divine feminine mm-hmm. at best. It was a performance just good enough to avoid detection. So I look similarly at when, when, and, and I'm not essentializing, but I think when a male is cultivating a masculine role in relationship, there's an amplitude and a of alignment that can be reached where a female cultivating a feminine expression, there's just something where from the first cell division in the womb, to all the in utero hormonal washes and all of the developmental stages of organ development, every every expression of the codes of their DNA was in a direction of that polarity. And when you then live in alignment with that, the, a magic is available. That is, we can't, crossing the wires along the way, uh, it just, it, 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 there's a difference. There's a difference in, in possibility. And when I say the wounded feminine, I'm, I'm pointing towards a bit of that mismatch or imbalanced expression of that female system. We're now moving a little bit into the philosophical from yeah. the personal, which is, which is fine. So I don't want to yeah, artificially you. go back into the personal, but I, yeah. but I want to give a little pushback there. Yeah. So this is really, to me, we're really getting to the heart of a lot of these conversations come to. So it's interesting. Because a lot of the struggle, even in the men's movement, happens between what I would call a more traditionalist, mythopoetic view of masculinity and femininity and gender, and and what was the sort of feminist view. And I and to me, there there's a polarization there even. Yeah. And some of what you're saying, I get. I'm I am a man. I feel certain what would be called masculine impulses, right? And I understand that the suppression of those doesn't feel good, wouldn't feel good. I I generally have not allowed it. And as men, we are facing different cultural impulses where on the one hand, we've got a lot of voices saying, you got to reclaim the masculine and the role and become a king and a leader and thus is being suppressed and society is being feminized. And we also have another uh, side of the spectrum that's saying men are toxic and they're you know violent and do perpetrating all this bad stuff and they need to you know 
learn how to be in a better way. And somewhere between those things, there's an untapped truth. And so when you say this very beautifully expressed thing about like, you know, the cells of what's in the woman's DNA and what's in a man's DNA and tapping into the energy for the one and this polarity, it, it sounds a lot like what, you know, the polarity movement a little bit. But what do you say when you have a woman? I know I can name several couples where the woman's energy would be traditionally called very masculine, right? Self-assertive, leadership, agenda-driven, you know, dominant in a way. And the man in a couple, even in a married couple, is more sensitive, intuitive, supportive, emotionally self-expressed. I've seen it happen. And I don't know if that would be called a match, you know, yeah. back in, in, in Thailand. Thailand. Yeah. But like, so what do you say to the idea that across the spectrum of people born assigned as male or however we want to use the language or female, that there really is a broad spectrum of how the so-called feminine is manifest in one person versus another. And does it not seem more broadly humanistic to say, these are very unique expressions. And if you took a, a, a very so-called masculine female and tried to make her, hey, look, the magic's really going to happen if you tap into your feminine more, right? There's something that seems a little artificial about that to me. Of course. So so how does that yeah. jive with what you're saying? Yeah, of course, of course. And I like to bring it back to that because no, we, we, everyone, everything is perfect right where we are. And it's ultimately about relationship. This this world for me is life is experiencing itself through human consciousness, or hum, consciousness is exploring itself through human life, or however you want to look at it. But that is a, a linear experience. We can talk evolutionarily about why we create that as the operating system for this refinement of consciousness. But in that dualism. There's a depth available in relationship to others that's not available in the own mind. And it's, that's a different geometry when in a poly configuration. If it's polygamy or polyamory, just a polygonal geometry mm -hmm. is very different than a binary geometry. And that possibility of relationship is expedited with more polarity in the whole system. But you, we have technology and we are a evolving expression of consciousness, a materially evolving species. And I think it's a beautiful thing when that complexity arises and match can be made. We can find relationship. But if the complexity is such that we are unable to be in relationship with others, I think we have an imbalance. It's a, in, in kind of AI algorithm, this is called perplexity and entropy. And we have this like move... Um, there's, there's too much perplexity in the system for it to make any sense. Mm -hmm. So then it's hard to be in relationship to it. Then this comes back to the language-based identity politics of let's just complicate the space with more and more languages to further and further niche divide one another because we're illiterate to the energy of the body and we're just mm -hmm. all mind and right. language-based. And then these become more and more technical terms where all the queer people are like super kink literate and, and, and have these these various polycules making up a constellation of relationships that's right. a polyamorous family. Right, and right. It's like, how are the kids going to be exp experiencing this? Mm -hmm. What's the 
and then then the legal the legal framework to even have visitation rights in hospitals or like have you know authority over the parents and during the, the children during education like there's so much complexity and that might just indicate that that's imbalanced so it sounds like you're saying that there's cultural evolutions happening sociological evolutions happening that are exploratory and very liberating to people in some ways but that they're resulting in a complexity of structure that is in some way not conducive to family. And relationship in general, if it's a reproductive unit or not. So just to be, cause that, I mean, that could be, you know, if that would be easily, someone could sound bite that and turn that into a very radical statement. I don't think you mean it as radically as you mean it. I mean, do you feel it's possible, for example, for like, how do you feel about gay marriage and gay families? I, I, I love, families. yeah, like, yeah, for sure. So I-, I You're saying a do a duad of some point yeah, where there's a match. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't matter- Exactly. Whether the, what the sexuality is or the, but there has to be some sort of a do like a dual. You're saying like, uh, for example, to just get it down to brass tacks, a thruple wouldn't be a good- parenting situation i just i don't know so i mean it, i mean because i'm just gonna throw it out there i do know at least one, I've one uh, some friends of mine come to mind that i think they would consider themselves as three parents it was in, in a relationship that emerged from a guy who was married to a woman yeah. and then veered in his sexuality yeah. towards yeah, yeah. being gay partnered and married a man but had a child from the marriage and now all three the men as a couple and the woman arguably a th- you know, a polyglot or whatever you're calling it, yeah, yeah. but highly functional, wonderful, loving, healthy family. I, I love that. So I'm just giving yeah. an example I, that yeah, I know yeah. out of my own, you know. Yeah, I, I would kind of, and I love that you're highlighting the spaciousness in what I've articulated so far because it, it doesn't fully, that doesn't fully represent my perspective. So right. I can refine it a little bit to to kind of say, so from experience, I live in the polyamorous community. I was had anchor partners and had a constellation of four other relationships that we would meet quarterly and have group experiences wow. and whatnot. So I, I went pretty into it and I and I there were children in in that ecosystem and whatnot. And I think they were very healthy. Um, there was a high degree of professional success and high degree of mental health and it was a very uh, growth mindset throughout the whole ecosystem. So it can work beautifully. Um, and villages raise kids most effectively. Right. Like, there's a lot of anthropology around uh, the, the, the drivers of evolution and having a village raise kids after the 18 months post-birth where the, the hormonal cascades have leveled off and the parents can either have another kid um, or, or you know, rearrange their, their coupling. So I would just take relation, my whole thesis earlier around relationship and duality uh, and the philosophy of this and taking it away from reproductive relationship and just having it in, we need to be in relationship to cultivate our life and to mine the real diamonds of this experience. And if, if there's too much complexity that we can't be in relationship with others, that's just alienation. And then there's a cascade to his isolation and you either become monastic or a renunciate or an, an, maybe an author or a speaker, but you really don't have intimacy as available, um, or you can can you know strive to communicate who you are and try strive to be in integrity with that, such that others can relate to that. And and maybe a good litmus test for there's a there's this the velocity of our trend to complexity. Right? Like how fast are we getting complex? Right. If, if, if we wanted to diagnose, are we going too fast or not? 
How's our embodied cognition? How's our energetic literacy with others? If we are able to go into a space and sync up with others and unlock an amazingly complex relationship or configuration, go for it. But if, in fact, we find that we've done all the personality tests and all the different um, you know, assessments and the, the, the algorithm says we should meet this person and we meet that person, it's like, oh, that doesn't feel good. Maybe our brain should slow down and breathe. <laughs> and then we can just get a little I, I, less I'm, I think I'm, I'm picking up what yeah. you're putting down, as they used yeah. to say in the 70s. Yeah. Um, two things. So just being super clear about your journey. So your journey into and then out of trans identity from a physical standpoint. So you never did anything surgical. No, you, I did you, it all, man. Oh, you did? Yeah, so I did it all. And then I, um, when I got into Santo Daime and I came back from living in Bali, I traveled the world for a year during the pandemic and was invited to live in the Amazon with Benki Piaco at mm. the Yorenko Tassarensi Center. Transformational, you know, 14 ceremonies in a row there. Live with the Yawanawa with a very traditional polarity and spirituality and relationships there. And I learned a lot about the stories I had put on and they're, when they grow and scale, they break because they're actually not refined enough to scale. And there's a reason why ancient and traditional dynamics are still here. There's a sacredness to polarity. Okay, so this is interesting. Yeah. So when you say you did it all, you fully transitioned. Full, I have a neo-vagina. Um, I had silicon breasts and I had hormones for about five years. So I was injecting every week. So you had kind of a, that's a heavy thing. And that's a, yeah. kind of a key element to the story here. I'm glad yeah. that we, we got yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wasn't sure. So you had an epiphany, right? Yeah. When you had, when you were meeting with this. Uh, yeah, the tribes. The, yeah. Yeah, because the, I, I realized that what I had, I bought escapism and full transformation. Um, but what I received was castration and uh, essentially like a, like a, a, a crude mask a disguise so and i don't mean to like to knock the trans endeavor in modern western culture but i do mean to check it a bit and say like what can we really do with our technology are we really rewriting the cell divisions that occurred post semen and egg fertilization or are we cosmetically inducing a second puberty and then living as a transsexual, which is a valid way to be. But it, it, if there is erotic function, but not reproductive function, let's, how differentiated from a eunuch is that? Mm. And people, it's so like, I'm a fancy eunuch that can have orgasms, right? So to be objective about it. So mm -hmm. like, so, and I'm cool with that. I think a lot of trans people get into their, they're like, I'm triggered by your language, which I can use more accommodating language, but I think that we're in a space in this conversation where it's open enough. Um, but I, it's I, wide open. Yeah, here. yeah. I'm, just, I, I'm fascinated yeah, by, by this. Uh, yeah. So, so it. I'm being honest about the limitations of the biotechnology and the the limitations of our knowledge, because I don't think we can actually change base sex when an organism is alive, and it would involve probably killing that organism and having another one that right. has some of the genetic material, but expressed from the first cell division and the opposite. Um, sexual sex binary right so it would have you'd have to like make a clone of you and then have it speciate into the female right you couldn't okay. transform your you're, living organism you're saying a lot of super interesting yeah, stuff yeah. but it's it's getting so heady yeah um so you so two questions what's your relationship 
to your feminine, what you would call your feminine expressions and your just energetically yeah. now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So beyond the bodily changes. Here you are, you're living your identity as man. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. And and so all these things that felt unexpressed when you were younger, when you first went on that journey, in the context of what you're saying about polarity and genetics and all that stuff, presumably you still have aspects of yourself, as I would argue all human beings do, that are feminine and masculine, right? Those things that you were, right? You sort of, it could be argued that, you know, if we're to reduce your story, right? You were brought up in the super conservative and somewhat repressive, you know, household, religious. There were parts of yourself that felt unexpressed. You traveled the world, you became worldly, you you became exposed to cultural things that were far more expansive. You had your own biographical story with your brother and your sisters. You explored aspects of yourself in the safety and kind of interesting foreignness of different cultures that were di very different from the one you grew up in. Um, you went on this fully expressed journey. You went into a community where you felt certain things are supported. You you transformed your body. You allowed your body to be transformed. Mm -hmm. You emerged. You had all psychedelic journeys, you, plant medicine, spiritual growth, came to see all of this in a different way. Um, but emerging as you have now, yeah. is it safe to say that there is a balance of these energies in any given person, right? I'm just trying to home in on what your yeah. takeaway is beyond, all, you know, like if we, if you could boil it into say non-intellectual yeah, yeah. language. Yeah. Um, and so give me that. Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. So, yeah. I, and I've got that. I, I think um, there are hard limits to evolution and it the 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 kind of surgical and biotechnical approach is not as fruitful as the inner approach what does the inner approach look like in a world where men and women however they were born boys and girls are f really free to explore and manifest what would that inner approach look yeah, like yeah yeah well what i point to for the the kind of the strength of the scaffolding to scale up the truthfulness of any endeavor right if it's you know if i do this this will happen again and again there's a rhythmic intelligence in that this is kundalini language right your organ systems moving in coherence and there's a there's a, a constructive interference that amplifies so in in the inner exploration the mining right all of these experiences that come to me that people would say these traumas happened to me no 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 these these aspects of the human experience came to me to experience love and integration and then i reveal that i am that that deeper witness to it all right i am not the body the body is the school the body is the is the dojo um that the 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 depth available to continue to cultivate the discipline to habituate that actual lifestyle of inner reflection and stillness and then to be able to match state with task such that we are present in action whatever is to be done that i think is a functional definition of enlightenment to borrow directly from what jamie wheels taught me right when we can match state to task now we are functionally 
enlightened in, in, in our culture. And that's like, I can cultivate stillness, but if I bring a high powered entrepreneur into stillness, then the company's probably not going to get built. <laughs> so how do you, so, so but how yeah. does that translate to like, talk to yourself, talk to some version of your younger self who's dealing with discrepancy and tension between what their sociological upbringing is telling them or their religious upbringing and things that feel unexpressed. Yeah. How would you, what would you say, what would you offer to you, if you could go back and talk to the younger you, for example, and say, hey, you know, you, you're, there's one possible future where you go down this path and, you know, goes into completely altering your body, or there's another path. What, how would you break it down to that person? Yeah, so there are, there's so much we don't know about what we don't know. And there's so much we don't, we don't know about our body and it's the technology that this is. So really reserve any kind of surgical intervention for triaging acute danger. Right? I'm going to bleed out, therefore surgery must happen. Um, any other interruption of the grand technology, of sensitive technology of this body will have ripples of impact throughout consciousness and psychology for the remainder of your life. And those can be continually alchemized into gifts and joy and connection. And that will shape who we are. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, so are you, do you have a relationship? Do you have a contentious relationship with the trans community? Are you seen as kind of like a, a yeah. traitor? Uh, a lot of them will say that and have said that. Um, I, cause I advocate for, like, I don't, I don't say don't do it. I just say like, how's your heart? And then if your heart's good, like, cause my heart was so good. I had therapists, I had spiritual advisors saying, you know, how's your heart? And I would get my body, do the heart math, M wave device, you know, I get the coherence and I'd be like, let's go. Now that there's, there are distinctions between pleasure seeking behavior and hedonism and intellectual grad and intellectual, you know, pornography basically like intellectual simulation and actually like heart presence and there's a reason why certain decisions are not to be offered to children so maybe i didn't have a deep enough relationship to my heart because i thought and fully invested and fully committed to the information that my gut and my brain were giving me that was go forth do this feminine embodiment mm -hmm. like it was it wasn't like cut off my dick it was let's tuck in the genitals so it can be in the celebration that is this new exploration of embodied consciousness it was like i can't access public space because i have a bulge in my pants i don't get erections and i don't really use this in sex so like let's invite this kind of artifact of my previous form into alignment with this new form let's do the hard and terrifying thing and rearrange myself i literally i wrote love letters to my penis you weren't getting erections because of the hormone hormones, stuff. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And think of and and I can go. I can trace back <clears throat> experiences and you know primary like uh, first sexual relationships in high school where maybe I like, didn't get the best blowjob or something, and I had this pattern about like that was a guilt and a shame thing to want to receive that. So I didn't. I had a, a love hate relationship, and I, what we didn't come up in this, which is I think really present in the trans community right now. 
um, and I think is is a decent factor in my experience, uh, is a lot of the technology and social media and then the technology in erotic content. So it's is this pornography or not? I don't know. But there's essentially, and, and this is a maybe, I don't know, content warning, but there's essentially audio, um, everything from binaural beats that stimulate orgasm. Um, like they can get you in to synchronize with a state of arousal hmm. through just sound wow. to uh, ASMR, audio stimulated meridian response, really high fidelity audiophiles of like sexual activity or like women pleasuring themselves. And these can, can kind of erotic target fixation can be in these audio experiences. And then this goes into, um, you know, when I was, uh, and, and this stuff, when you can control the flow of, of, sexual attention in a, a, a culture you can get a really good diagnosis of the, the the relationships in that culture so looking at the porn habits of america indicates a lot of the the, the cultural yeah. relationship habits of americans um so there's in the trans movement there's this thing called like feminization hypnosis and it's for me i was into hypnosis meditation and then i found guided hypnosis silva method and i got all into this cool stuff and i was you know doing my zen meditation I was doing some mantras and kundalini. And then I found a, a, a guided meditation that went through essentially a transition experience. You like had a magical transformation. And to someone who was already processing, you know, this was somewhere in the probably in early college I encountered this stuff. I was just like, wait, what? I can transform? And it was the ultimate escapism. And it, you're in hypnosis, you accept suggestions that are logically, you know, low integrity and mm -hmm. I, I have i was like super hooked and then i started getting my um my like er, my erotic anchor on that so i was having an orgasm under hypnosis with the image of myself as a woman mm. all through audio mm. and then i found that there's video stuff that goes even deeper with like spirals and and actual porn images and stuff and i was just like this is dangerous this is dangerous and now I know because I've been on the subreddits to see in the detransition subreddits, people just talk at length about how this feminization hypnosis content ruined their lives. And I'm like, for a technology perspective, because I, you know, I told you earlier today, I was mentoring a, an entrepreneur who has a essentially a, a tokenization uh, system for uh, you can have a, a you can make money by stabilizing certain states of of um, EEG readings. So holding your brain in a certain meditative state, and you grind a token, and you can be rewarded for meditation. Mm. And it's super cool economics based on presence. Very cool. Let's let's strategize to get that into the world. But I'm in the space of brain tech, and I'm in the space of transformative tech. Hypno porn, training people to want to escape into a trans identity. That is like, and that's real. It's hundred percent yeah. real, right. and and it's like I don't know that we're ready as a species to relate to that technology because if you, any other malintent, you can also, right? If if technology is a neutral amplifier, right, and someone can change your personality by doing a guided hypnosis and then putting all of these somatic Ima cues. Imagine the other stuff you could do with that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Uh, just gotta drop some bombs in the middle of the podcast. Yeah, here. this is so fascinating. <laughs> I mean, I'm getting a feeling that just I don't want to overwhelm people, and I would like to yeah. in invite you back for maybe another conversation. Yeah, yeah. But maybe a closing question. I'm just still just processing your entire journey. Given what you've told me about all of these factors that influence your course, 
Had you grown up in a world where what was presented to you culturally as what defines a man or a woman was much broader and expansive. For example, you were born a, a boy, a variety of expressions, like all the stuff that was repressing you, the dancing, the, yeah, the yeah. fabrics and stuff, but that had all been encouraged as part of what's totally legitimately part of being a boy or a man. Do you think that you would have had the same journey towards another gender? How much of that? Yeah, how much of those, so, do those cultural influences yeah, play a part? Do you think that's that's it's it's a it's a great thought. Like I'm familiar with unschooling and and you know I experienced a lot of that. Like part of an intentional community um, for a while there that that did a lot of this like beyond categories work. Um, and they definitely repression like is lingering. Um, so I have repression and. I will always have it. And I don't know that that's a bad thing. I think it's just a, a values and a direction thing. If I had an expansive paradigm, um, like as the container for my childhood, uh, I probably would be uh, some kind of more, I would be less intellectual significantly because I think a lot of my intellectual curiosity was came from solving things, right? Like my, my grandfather designed the, the lunar module, the, the LEM, the landing gears and things. There's a lot of engineering on my mom's side. And my dad's dad was an entrepreneur figuring out, you know, cash flow and, and, and value. So I, I think that those, I would have probably been more of an artist and then brought technology in later. I probably would have been just a heterosexual male and not gotten into sophisticated theories of identity politics, right? It The taboo and shame of my development developmental stages, I did use as fuel. It It's not the best fuel. And it caused me to maybe rocket off in different trajectories. Whereas if I had a more accepting and positive fuel, I probably could have flowed down the river a little more smoothly. That's a very uh, poetically stated answer, and I appreciate it. I really so much, uh, I'm in awe of your capacity to self-reflect and make sense of your own journey and of the world, and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really eager to have more conversations with you. I appreciate you sharing so openly and confidently and vulnerably, and it'll be interesting to... Uh, to see what people make of this conversation because I didn't know going into it what this conversation was going to yield and I think you've you know there's we've just unlocked a lot of more tangents that we could go down about what masculinity is and what this polarity stuff is I think that that there's more to mine there so maybe yeah. we'll do another yeah and, and Dan I think one of the things to, to note for folks listening is I am I would say in our treatment of the story that I'm we're laying out here uh, anchored in my life but also about the culture more broadly we're we're not quite at the present moment. We're we're still a little bit in like a year or two ago, and I think that that's important because we there there was there's work with the Lakota with the indigenous ceremonial technologies around gender based initiations, and then there's work with I'm doing with men's groups here in the United States where I'm actually cultivating discipline and responsibility with other men, and that conscious choice 
I to to take a position in masculinity, and also you know there's there's trans men and there are homosexual men in our dojo. So there's a modern man movement that's also seeking other men to have dialogue with. So that I think there's a piece there that could be a good springboard for another conversation about we've covered the journey to here and now it's like where are we actually going right let's do that let's do another let's do another episode about your men's work and what your yeah what what, how your journey has informed it yeah i I would love to 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 keep that discussion alive um and i also want to say thank you and then if if people want to talk to me i have my website it's codapip.com and i also have an instagram at coda underscore pip and those are those are really easy ways to get me um I, I, I want to spell that for people. That's K O D A H P I P. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. And you know, I work with people who are on similar journeys. And there's, if it's gender, or if it's, or if it's addiction, or if it's escapism, whatever that thing is, because I, I believe and have experienced that our contribution actually comes through working through these inner, inner challenges that we've chose to to navigate in this life, because that's where our genius comes from how we move through these things. And when I find entrepreneurs that have had some big happening in their life and have moved through it, they have an edge. And if we can get what your edge is, we can really marry that to your contribution and then have teams form up around you. And that's where I think that all of this work starts being in relationship with a broader conversation through distribution, through culture, through the economics of it. Um, and I, I love, you know, unlocking the genius of people's experiences. Great. Yeah. That sounds like really valuable work to be doing. And you certainly have the uh, charisma and intelligence, I think, to be successful at whatever you do. So uh, it's been a really great conversation. And we'll just call it a wrap for this one and look forward to having you back. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for listening to this very long conversation. Uh, It raised so many questions for me. It made me want to talk more with different trans men and women. It left me hoping that within and surrounding the trans community, we can establish kind of an expansive culture that continues to support and protect those people for whom transition is the only way forward and also minimizes the occurrence of regret or remorse for taking that path, uh, which can be obviously irreversible. So if you found value in this episode, please share it. Please subscribe. Please review the podcast favorably. Please tell your friends. Follow me on Instagram at Dan McKenzie. That's D-A-N-M-A-C-K-E-N-Z-Y. Feel free to email me at omegamalesays, S-A-Y-S, at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter slash X um, at omegamalesays. Uh, Maybe I'll start tweeting at some point. The song in the background is Little Brother by Living Roots, an amazing musical act that I've had the great pleasure of working with. And please check them out. They're amazing. Mm